Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Chris Alieri, who is an activist in New York City working to save the piping plover, a beloved and endangered bird. Well, I don't think we've had another, I don't think we've ever had a, a an episode about the piping plover before. Uh, no, I, I agree. And it might sound like it's a super local issue, but not only is the piping plover not local because they migrate great distance, but... You know, we're always talking about ways to become active. And most of us tend to focus on farm animals and vegan issues because, you know, that's where all the animals are and as a way to get active. But Chris talks, who comes from a vegan perspective, talks about getting very, very active about this one particular species in this one particular place and getting to know more wildlife people and and, and broadening that circle of people who care about animals and not just bird watchers, not just people who look at birds. Oh, I can add that to my list, but people who who really, really, really care about these birds. So I found it a really interesting conversation. I love when vegans are in the mix with wildlife issues. Yeah, both wildlife and companion animal issues. It's a way to to be there, be vegan, be be visibly vegan amongst people who at least some of them might actually get it. Yeah. I also loved talking about this topic because we talked about the beaches of Rockaway and Aww. you know, I've the, I love the beaches of Rockaway as you do as well. I do. Very it's such a special place. And it's so bizarre that it's in New York City. I know, totally. This is definitely the kind of subject that gives me hope. Ultimately, like when there are just, you know, vegans infiltrating these very adjacent spaces. And hope is something we've talked about quite a lot on our hen house. Well, it's an ever, yeah. Ever I evolving mean, topic. I think that the both of us and everyone who's listening sometimes has trouble holding on to hope. And, you know, we've talked before. We kind of had to change this messaging. Like we've always talked about hope as a strategy, by which we mean that being hopeful out in the world is a way to attract people and draw people in and and show people that that activism can work and that it's worth doing. And then all of a sudden it became popular to say hope is not a strategy. <laughs> by which people meant something kind of different, that you have to do more than just hope something's going to change. You have to do something, which, you know, I totally agree with. So maybe the language hope is a strategy doesn't exactly work anymore. But I do think the idea works that that being hopeful out in the world is very being positive. And, you know, we recently had a conversation about this and I was thinking about it. And I think it's really, really important to do. But I also started to think about the fact, because we were talking more about climate than about animals, though, you know, both topics overlap completely for me. But the problem is, if we're just out in the world sounding hopeful, we're talking to a lot of people who are not even recognizing that there's a problem. You can't just be hopeful because people are, like in a way, people are too, too hopeful or or at least too blind to what's really going on, whether it's about animals or about climate or about a million other things. So you have to balance your hopefulness with also trying to convey to people that there's an enormous, enormous, terrifying problem that has to be addressed. And we should all be unbelievably frightened and upset. And yet we should still be hopeful. It's not the easiest tightrope to travel. Do you think that people who are better at compartmentalizing can do it? 
Uh, maybe. Am I, am I, I don't know whether I'm good or bad at compartmentalizing. You know, I just like, I was talking to my brother recently and I think he's excellent at compartmentalizing so much so that he's not vegan. You know what I mean? Like that's the problem with compartmentalizing. I don't know exactly what you mean. Can you, can you draw that out a bit? Well, okay. So like there's a toxic person who I'm biologically related to and I haven't spoken with in many, many years. And my, my brother continues to speak with this person because even though I think my brother recognizes this person's flaws, he can also put them aside to some extent in order to like reap the benefits of the relationship where I can't do that. Like if you're going to be that big of a toxic asshole, like I'm not going to give you the time of day. So therefore, I think that my like core my worldview is is very much reflected in all of my decisions. And that's probably a virtue and a vice because it can be a little bit difficult sometimes. So you mean like by compartmentalizing, you mean people can, can recognize there's a problem here and think about it and then put it somewhere yeah. and not have it affect the rest of their life. Right. So I'm wondering if those people can find hope a little bit more easily because they aren't necessarily being clouded by everything that yeah. I'm being clouded by. I mean, I think that that I have to think both about the fact that climate change is really, really, really scary and animals are suffering by the billions and the world is just, I mean, as we all know, there's, like, there's a lot going on to be miserable and, and negative about, like really a lot. And yet I want to find hope both because for my own sake, that I, you know, I want to find ways to live in the world that I'm not constantly in despair, and because it's a better, it's better activism. Like you reach pe- more people if you can say to them, "All right, these things are bad, but we can do this and this and this, and if we do this and this and this, and we get everybody together and everybody's an activist, then we can change things." And I think that I, I actually think that's really true, and that's why I do it. But I guess the thing that was troubling me was that that when you're talking to people who don't even seem to be aware of factory farming or climate change or whatever the topic is, you can't just be hopeful. You have to both give them the bad news and then tell them that there is a possibility for hope. And, you know, I find that challenging sometimes. I do too. I think we all do. It's a very good point. You know, sinking into despair just doesn't help anybody, including yourself. So it's a good thing to fight against. If you do sink into despair... You can do what we did the other day and eat our feelings at a <laughs> at an old nice school segue. diner. Nice oh my segue. God. I was so happy. You know, I'm not a foodie. I don't consider myself a foodie. People think all vegans are foodies. It's not true. I, I just, you know, I like good food in front of me and then I eat it and then I'm done. I don't have strong opinions usually. No, me neither. I usually eat what's put in front of me unless it's made out of animals. Yeah, exactly. Then it's not food. So it's not part of this discussion. But Anyway, I almost cried the other day because of how happy I was. Like, I'm a Jersey girl. I haven't lived there in, you know, since the mid-90s. But once a Jersey girl, always a Jersey girl. And I am therefore hardwired to be completely head over heels for diners and the diner experience. You know, I'm not a Jersey girl, though I do come from the outskirts of New York City, Long Island specifically which is not quite as diner ridden as New Jersey, but I also just love a diner. And one of the tragedies is that 
one so often goes into a diner and there's like absolutely nothing to eat. It's ridiculous. In fact, I, my friend Rachel and I, Rachel Kranz, she was staying with me recently and I, I wanted to go to this diner in Rochester so much because it was so cute and we like, we got fries. Yeah. <laughs> like it was not. Yeah. And I just wanted this cute experience and it was really cute. But anyhow. Fries are the, the normal. Uh, yeah, the normal fries and maybe a salad. So frequently the salads have chicken in them. So, uh, yeah, like sometimes it's just fries. Lettuce. Yeah. So we went to the Pen Yan Diner, which is like about an hour, 15 minutes outside of Rochester. It's in the Finger Lakes. And Pretty much almost everything on the menu, they also have a vegan version of it. So I got the classic diner is what it's called. And let me tell you what the non-vegan version is first. And then, you know, we'll veganize it. You've got eggs, sausage, pancakes, potatoes, toast with butter. And uh, that might have been it. But anyhow. Long coffee. And coffee, right? On uh, bottomless coffee, as you know, as it as it is, as it happens, and so it shall be. Anyway, let me just tell you that they had just egg, beyond sausage, vegan butter, vegan pancakes, you know, oat milk in the coffee, and I like don't know how to explain the experience except to say it was like probably the best meal I've had in the last five years. And I've been to like very nice vegan restaurants many times in the last five years. But this, I even said while we're eating this, I'm like, we have to come here for my birthday dinner, which is in like October, but I'm already like planning it because good Lord. This is serious New Jersey comfort food. All I need to do is go bowling afterwards and it would be like a perfectly well-rounded evening. (laughs) I have to say also, we should mention, I'm Penyan, as you mentioned, is a town in the Finger Lakes. And this diner is also, it's kind of on a side street. And it is one of the original diners. You know, diners were originally founded, like I think during the Depression, when a dining car from a, a train was put out of service. And so, you know, because people didn't have money and to build buildings, they just turned it into a restaurant. And so it's tiny. It has a, it does have a counter. We got to sit at a table. It doesn't have booths, which is, you know, kind of, but I think it was pre-booth. It has hardly been renovated over the years. So it's still very, it, it's just the best restaurant uh, you can imagine. It's from 1925. The decor is a little bit more 50s, but it all feels very antique. Very good. Oh, so good. So do I sound tired? <laughs> I, I'm, I've been up again since three because I, I did morning edition this morning, but I wanted to tell you an exciting thing. Uh, well, you, of course, know, but I'm telling other people. I do know. So I got... I'll just sit here patiently while you tell them. I got an outright vegan story p- published on, on WXXI. And it it's such a fun, like, good story. And it's it's about how the Rochester Institute of Technology, or RIT, has been working actually with HSUS. They have a program called Forward Food Pledge, and it, the the campaign in general works with big institutions such as uh, colleges, universities, and hospitals, other institutions to increase its uh, plant based offerings on the menu. And then they work with they work with the institution like they have 
multiple different types of trainings. So RIT pledged to have half of its menu items be fully vegan by 2025, which is really soon. And it just, it's such a happy, happy story. Like the kids or the students who are at like the RIT vegan club were instrumental in making this happen. Students who went to the, the eateries on campus and requested more vegan food, they were instrumental in making it happen. So I'll link to it in, in the show notes. Cause I just am very happy to have had that moment. So yay. Yeah, I, it's really nice to have good news. Yes, it is. So why don't we talk about bad news now? <laughs> <laughs> That's that is our way. Enough of the positivity. Yeah, enough of the uh, enough of the indefatigable positivity. There was this article that we kept going back and forth about whether to talk about, but like it kept coming up. It came up last week too. It's called "Killer Whales Are Not Our Friends," and then the subhead is "Stop Rooting for the Orcas Ramming Boats." And it is in the Atlantic, as I mentioned. Why don't you talk a little bit about this? Probably most of you have heard of this story that a lot of, uh, there have been a lot of incidents of orcas attacking boats off the Iberian Peninsula. And three were sunk and several more were damaged. And it's, it's kind of gotten a lot of press. And there are, you know, various people commenting on it. One of the major comments and one that has has just kind of caught on is that and, you know, I think most of us really love this, is that they're taking revenge. They're sick of us. They're sick of what these boats are doing. They're sick of what people are doing, and they're attacking these boats. And a scientist, a biologist at the University of Aveiro in Portugal said the orcas are doing this on purpose. Of course, we don't know the origin of the motivation, but defensive behavior based on trauma as the origin of all this gains more strength for us every day. And then he talks about some particular uh, violent incidents that have happened to orcas. And, and, you know, that, as he says, we don't know, but this sounds right. And I think that the really interesting part of it is that this has just like entered the zeitgeist and people like this. People like this explanation. So the writer of this stupid article interviews other scientists who say, no, that's probably not it. It's probably that they're curious or they're playing or whatever. But the point is, we don't know. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is that it's interesting that people think this or want to think this because people are taking the side of these animals and are worried about these animals. That, to me, that's what's important about this article. I mean, about this these incidents uh, is what it shows about people. And then the article goes on about how, how orcas kill baby seals and uh, are, are really... <laughs> it's just so stupid. Like, like we're as if we're supposed to not root the, for them because they kill babies. They're animals, people. They're animals. We all know that they're animals. They do they do things that we wouldn't do. We don't only like animals who are like us. We don't only like they animals live in their world and we live in our world. I just found the article so uh, stupid and offensive. Uh, and I'll just take out a few. Quotes, in our present era of environmental catastrophe, somebody said, it's appealing to think that nature might fight back, that the villains get their just desserts. But projection and anthropomorphization are only shortcuts to a shallow sympathy. Orcas really are capable of intense grief. They are also capable of tormenting seal pups as a hobby. They are intelligent, emotionally complex creatures, but they are not us. Like, 
what? Nobody's saying they're us. It's just so typical of a certain attitude towards animals, of not accepting animals for who they are. And then this added story of of there's people out there who are realizing that what we do to them is so bad that maybe it's really good to think of them fighting back. That that story, like I had a lot of hope for it at the beginning. I, yeah. Honestly, it just evolved. It, it feels like even, even the good stuff the quote unquote good animal stories just they have this like human ego and this ridiculous speciesism. Like, I, I really hate this one. It's just y- yucky. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't have picked out this article because there's plenty being written about these orcas that are in the spirit of like, go orca, take out the boats. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, well, okay. So we just need it to vent a little bit. It's okay. All right. Well, I think we should get to our interview today because this is a super special conversation, very different than a lot of the episodes we have. So let's, let's, let's do it. Chris Alieri is the founder of NYC Plover Project, a nonprofit organization he began in March 2021 upon seeing a need to protect endangered piping plovers in New York City who were otherwise left to fend for themselves. In just over two years, the organization has grown to a staff of four and a force of 250 volunteers and was awarded the 2021 Hartzog Award as the nonprofit volunteer group of the year for the entire National Park Service. He will be joining Marianne right after this. In April, we were excited to share the news about Vermont Law and Graduate School's new Masters of Animal Protection Policy degree, an innovative program providing animal advocates the education, skills, and training to advance protections for animals. Today, there's more news to share from VLGS. The Animal Law and Policy Institute at VLGS is proud to announce that they now offer an Animal Law LLM degree program, becoming only the second school in the world to offer this degree. Students can learn a concentration in animal law, master's degree, or LLM individually or combined as dual degrees, residentially or online, taking advantage of the extensive environmental and animal law and policy curriculum. Vermont's animal law and policy degree programs prioritize hands-on learning opportunities to prepare students for careers in nonprofit leadership, legal practice, academia, government, and more. You may visit their website at vermontlaw.edu slash animallaw to learn about the degree programs, scholarships, events, and summer courses, which are open to students at other schools or anyone who would like to audit a course to learn how to be an effective animal advocate. Reach out to Delcy Winders or Laura Ireland at animallaw at vermontlaw.edu to learn more. Welcome to our hen house, Chris. Thank you. This is a really kind of unusual interview because it's hard for us to get wildlife people because frequently they don't get the big picture. But I saw what you were doing and I saw who you are. It just seems really interesting. So I'm really excited to be talking about your trajectory and about the New York City piping plovers. I used to live in New York City, lived there most of my life. So they are an issue that is dear to my heart. But even though you're focused on this one specific species, and we're going to talk a lot about the piping plovers, I know you started somewhat unusually with a very broad view of animals. So I don't always start with people's vegan story, but can we start with yours? How did it start with animals? And then you went vegan and how'd that all yeah. start? 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I have this feeling right now that I want to say 17 things at once because I'm just so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you and how you opened this to seeing the big picture of animals and a deep care and love and respect of all species. And that is different for the wildlife movement and for people working within wildlife and certainly for many scientists and biologists who I call colleagues and friends. So I think they respect my origins and my orientation, but I think also there is something at the core of wildlife biology and science, which is remove yourself, don't name wildlife, don't get too caught up in the outcomes, don't get sad when a baby piping plover chick gets predated. But that's not me. I can't rewire myself at this point. I'm pushing 50 and early next year. And for me, I think at this point, I'm getting closer to my core self of who I was as a young kid. And so I think my vegan origin story goes way back. I was a kid in a suburb in New Jersey, and we had a swamp behind our house. I called it Beaver Swamp. I put in different pads and stone structures and all sorts of things. I am Italian, so I had to build some structures. So for me... Like I loved, absolutely loved being outdoors and being in the mud and the dirt. And that was like my happy place. And fast forward a few years, I started my environmental club in high school. My first memories were wanting to be a veterinarian. And so all of these things kind of lined up, but yet life happens. I got caught up too much or worked in too many jobs with too many bosses that curiously was always an issue with them. But I think after like 17 bosses, my parents were like, maybe it's not them. Um, and I think, <laughs> you know, for me, just like even over the last few years, and of course, there's a pandemic tie in, right? But I really rediscovered this passion for animals relatively recently, I think it was 2016. And obviously pre pandemic, but then the pandemic was a key moment for the NYC Plover project. But it goes down to one exact Thing. I adopted a rescue rabbit that had been dumped in a park in New York City. His name was Bean. He was in our life from 2016 to 2020. My soulmate in life came in the form of this vegan little perfect pet. And he was a lop-eared bunny. He was a big personality. And I spent a lot of time with him. I have two tattoos. I got one tattoo of him and it wasn't enough. So I got a second tattoo. <laughs> I'm already thinking, do I need a third tattoo? Because you have to do things in freeze. But so for me, I credit everything to being, I got involved through my friend Megan, who was on the board of Farm Sanctuary, got involved as a board member of Farm Sanctuary, and then I became the board chair. I shortly thereafter joined the board of Wild Bird Fund. And then most importantly, I'd been vegetarian for a long time in high school, into college, and then kind of just lulled back into eating animals. And then it was 2016 with Bean and all these other things were happening. And I was on a tour. It was right before I joined the board of Farm Sanctuary, actually. And I was on the tour of the Acton Sanctuary in Los Angeles area. And an intern, a young employee who was doing tours, just gave the dairy pitch. And I heard it. And after hearing the dairy pitch a few times, so persuasively, I just didn't hear it. Right. And I heard it there. And that was like, I think, March of 2016. So that's been how long I've been vegan. So once you hear it, once you accept it and bring it into your heart. And for me, everything I do now 
is coming from this place of do no harm or try to do no harm across all species. And that's hard sometimes in wildlife. Yeah. And we'll get into those issues because it is hard in wildlife, both because of other people who are involved and because of the issues themselves. I love that story, though. I, I love a story where the vegan conversion story is based in one particular animal. Mine was Calhoun, my dog, frequently a dog, but I like that yours is a bunny. You also, you didn't just go vegan. I mean, really, becoming an activist was really part of your vegan story. It all came together for you, I guess, because of your connection to Farm Sanctuary, too. And I really love that dairy story, too. I frequently tell people or tell myself, sometimes people have to hear it a bunch of times. Don't worry about repeating it. It's hard news for people. And somehow it doesn't sink in. Then all of a sudden, for one reason or another, on one particular day, it gets in. So just never hesitate to keep saying it. All right. So that gives us a little of the overall background, but how did you go from farm animals to endangered species or in a particular endangered species, which is not most people's trajectory? No, it's not. And I'll tell you, like, I have a lot of friends across the animal rights world and I have a deep amount of respect for a lot of groups. I am more constitutionally fit to be a founder and to be a doer and an activist and working in the trenches. And why I love the work we're doing with NYC Plover Project is that we have a singular mission. We have one terrain, which is the city of New York, specifically it's Queens, specifically it's the Rockaway Peninsula. And huge props to like all of the friends and folks that I've met across that movement. Like it's overwhelming and you oftentimes don't see the movement or the change, like the kind of I'm having an impact, right? And you don't see better impact than the ambassadors at places like Farm Sanctuary and Woodstock and Catskill and all that Love and Arms and so many wonderful places that I've been over the years. But I think for me, I don't know that I loved being a board member of an organization. I think like I wouldn't take back any of those experiences because they all were formative. But I think for me, at the end of the day, I, and this came from my parents. My, my mom's still with us. My dad is no longer with us. My dad plays a big part in my story because he was really into birds and he really was into shorebirds. And we grew up at the beach in southern New Jersey had a house there for many decades. And shorebirds was my dad's thing. Specifically, he loved piping plovers. Other times of the year, he would count osprey nests and things like that. And we all thought he was completely nuts. <laughs> and birders, for me, have always been like wackos with binoculars in the bushes. You're like, what are they looking at? And here I am, not only that wacko, but even more so because, you know, starting this group. But I guess just like my heart was open to this possibility of doing this work. And I mean, listen, like going vegan as an Italian, my name ends in a vowel, like the pull of mozzarella is really strong. (laughs) But for me, it wasn't about a diet. It's not about going plant-based. My parents were always like, you do. If you see something, you want change, you have to do it and put it into place. Because if not, you're just complaining. And right before the pandemic, actually, and I live in Brooklyn and in the Brooklyn Bridge Park, there was a vagrant bird, which is like a bird that's kind of off path for migration. And it was a female painted bunting. And she was like bright yellow. She looked like a little canary because I was involved with Wild Bird Fund already. And I had heard through friends that this bird was there and I couldn't believe it. And it made me just think, oh my gosh, like what, how did this bird get here? Will she have to get back on her path? And all of these things. And I had more questions than answers. And I think a few weeks later, the whole world changed. And I had binoculars, but I kind of barely picked them up. But 
One day I went on a city bike to Prospect Park and I discovered warblers and I discovered all these birds that were passing through in March and April of 2020. And they saved my life. My friend Cara said, you're like the one person I know who thrived during the pandemic because of birds. And I think I wouldn't quite say thrive, but it did definitely get me through. And I was out at the beach a month later, April or April timing, and I was out at Fort Children. And it was the first time in my life I had seen a piping plover up close. And then I saw dogs off leash. I saw people up on the dunes. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I had seen this. You know, I'd heard about this endangered species on the beach where I grew up. I first saw a piping plover when I was something like eight or nine years old. It had, you know, in hindsight, had just been listed under the Endangered Species Act. But it was somebody in a federal uniform with the National Wildlife Refuge System that took the time to speak to me as a person, you know. And I was always a little scientific young kid that like had a lot of questions, but he took the time to show me this bird and I saw it and it was like teeny tiny at the end of this, what I thought was a telescope, but it was a scope that birders use. And I, I couldn't believe it, right? But then all these years later to see this bird, birders like to talk about like their spark bird. And I hadn't realized that I had this spark bird and it was the piping plover. And mm-hmm. so for me, like to see this bird up close and then I also picked up a camera, the piping plover sort of seemingly left to fend for itself on the beach, really stuck with me. And then the first year, 2020 to 2021, I got some names, the National Park Service and New York City Parks, and I was taking photographs and I was just like sending all these emails and like FOIA requests and all these things. And it was just like, it was getting nowhere. And I could see I was being extremely annoying. And I think that one of the people that I had reached out to at the National Park Service I think she realized like I wasn't going anywhere (laughs) and it was like a year to the day almost. It was March of 2021 and I was out at the beach again and I saw the same thing. And so I was like, what are you going to do about it? There is no, they should, like we shouldn't should all over the place. Right. But there is no, they here that they has to be you. And so I went home and then the next morning I just was like, well, what am I going to call this thing? And I went on Instagram and I was like, okay, NYC Clover Project. Project seems better because it's like not permanent (laughs) or it's not like the rest of my life. But meanwhile, it's so clearly (laughs) has taken over every element of my life in a good way. Yeah. That reminds me of starting our hen house. Jasmine and I were like, what should we call it? I don't know. Nothing about chickens, our hen house. I don't know. And then here we are 12 years later. (laughs) All right. So tell us a little bit about the piping plover. Who are they? Where do they travel? How do they live? And of course, their connection to New York City and well, not just New York City and New Jersey and that area around there And, and why their situation is so dire and what they're up against. That's a, yeah, that's a great question. And I think I get asked that a lot. And I think that it's a tough question to answer sometimes because people come to the table, oftentimes if they live in beach communities or they've spent time in areas where piping plovers are, they have an opinion of who they are. And, oh, there's a lot of them. They think that they're another bird, which is the Sanderling. So they see a group of birds running back and forth with the waves and they think, oh, what are you talking about? They're endangered species. I just saw 150 of them. Piping plovers, one of the many reasons I love them, they're kind of loners. They don't spend a lot of time, even with their mates. They are a precarious, tiny little bird. They're about seven inches in length. They weigh about 
the same as two AA batteries. They're migratory shorebird species. They're listed and federally protected under the Endangered Species Act of 1973. So that's 50 years this year. Just quick sidebar, Endangered Species Act was signed into law by a left-wing lunatic president, Richard Nixon. <laughs> Richard you know, Nixon. So, right, you yeah. know, and this, this Things have changed. Up, Things yeah, have changed. Right. And this came about as at the same time as our seminal, most important environmental laws. And my pitch to everyone listening is speak up with your elected officials to tell them that you support the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act. The Endangered Species Act is so important. The Indigenous Species Act was a monumental advance, like worldwide. We were ahead of the game, and we really need to get there again. But anyway. We really do. And the support for endangered species and and the Endangered Species Act is something like nine out of 10. There's so many different studies. There hasn't been a recent study, so that might be interesting for a researcher to look at. But Many studies have shown something like 90% of Americans are in support of Endangered Species Act protections. But going back Except to the that fi- there are, but we should also mention there are very, very powerful forces constantly yes. trying to undermine yes. us. And this is where back to things like big industry and food industry yeah. and timber industry and some of our Democratic senators that, of course, Manchin, people know he's kind of a wild card, but like, Amy Klobuchar, Tammy Baldwin. These are like kind of coming for protections of the northern long-eared bat. There's been some good stories about some Endangered Species Act progress, but there's a lot of folks at the margins that are kind of chipping away at this seminally important law. And this the 50th year. So back to the piping plover, there's one endangered species that nests in New York City, and that is the piping plover. Where do they go when they're not in New York City? They're migratory. They go to the Bahamas. Yeah, they go to the Bahamas, Cuba, Turks and Caicos. Birds are just Uh, so amazing. I know, they really are. Now, some go to Florida and Texas, which are wonderful birding spots. But I think every time I say that, they're like, oh, well, I really do that. And I'm like, well, birds don't, they don't vote. There was actually (laughs) an elected official in New York City who you know, to to our appeals to getting them to support piping plovers. And believe it or not, there are there there is work against them in New York. Um, and an elected official or a staff member for a member of Congress said, well, birds don't vote. And that was really amazing and really honest of him to admit that. But that is something that like for me has stuck with me. And yeah, birds don't vote, but people do. Yeah. And animals don't vote. Farm animals don't vote, but people do. And I think it was something a long time ago, and I don't remember who it was, but it was when we say animals are voiceless, and I was corrected on that, and I'm so grateful to the person who did that. Because, I know, that has become something yeah. that people said, in, and still yeah. say, in a completely valid, and yeah. you know they're trying to say something authentic, but when you think about it, it's probably not the best way yeah. to express it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and piping plovers have like a most beautiful call, and you know I've heard all of their calls. I've heard everything that they're saying in terms of like when they're upset, when their kid won't listen, when there's like a gull overhead or when there's too many people on the beach. Like I've heard all of their different calls and they're certainly not voiceless. So it's just that we have to pay attention to It is a movement in which the allies have to do all the work. It is. It is. It is. Even any other movement for the most oppressed people in this one, the allies have to do all the work and that's who you are. 
That's a really great point. I never really thought of it that way, Marianne, but I think you're right. So the piping plover, they arrive to New York City beaches in March. They stay here through August. They pair up. They find a locations for nests. The male will build these scrapes, which is essentially if you took like a empty clamshell or the palm of your hand and you just press it into the dirt, yeah. maybe line it with some shell fragment fragments, but that's the nest. And it's Already, generally, the, I, I, one is terrified for them. There they are yeah. just sitting out there on the beach. Right on the beach itself, not up in the dunes, not like we put up protective fencing. We call it symbolic fencing because it's a symbolic, not a visual barrier, not an actual barrier. We put that up in mid-March. But right now, we're having a better season than we did last year, which is extremely exciting. But when I say better, all piping plover work, and we are now part of this international network of organizations, city, state, and federal agencies. We had a meeting in West Virginia, which is funny because you will never find a piping plover in West Virginia, but we had a meeting at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service National Conservation Training Center back in January with all the folks working on piping plovers across the Atlantic populations. And it's an amazing group of people. And I just uh, absolutely adore the work that, well, the people doing piping plover work, many people for decades. And they've been so welcoming and wonderful and join the party. We love what you're doing in New York. And so for me, that's been amazing to come to this party kind of late, but realizing that I have so much to learn. Tell yeah. us well, tell us a little bit about the organization, because I really, we love to talk about the animals, but the fact that you founded an organization and turned it into something that's actually productive is such an important thing for people to hear how that happened and how yeah. you did it and what the organization does and how it brings people together to help protect the birds. Thank you. Yeah. So I started in March of 2021. When I set up that Instagram account, I thought I could recruit some friends to get out on the beach with me to connect with beachgoers to like help monitor this bird. Meanwhile, a couple of years later, my friends haven't joined. But for us, the first year, I recruited maybe 30, 40 volunteers in 2021. Last year, we were up to more than 75 volunteers. And then this year, we'll have more than 250 volunteers wow. Wow. And, a, and a staff of four. So it's really taken flights, <laughs> so to speak. And we have two volunteer coordinators this year. We have a director of programs who was our volunteer coordinator last year. And I'm really excited too that we have a community liaison who grew up in the Far Rockaway community to connect with communities of color and other folks that may not have gotten the bird message or may not have gotten right. the conservation message. You know, what's interesting too in the Rockaways is that the front lines of climate change in New York City is Rockaway. If you think about Hurricane Sandy, which is just over 10 years ago, Rockaway got decimated and the city was forgotten in a lot of ways. And so the need for removing hardscapes and removing like cement barriers and barricades, we have to have permeable coastline. We have to have coastline that's actually good habitat as well. So there's a possibility of complementary goals here of both habitat restoration and softscapes along the water, but also towards being more coastally resilient for the city. And so for us, like kind of helping to make those connections is important. So the core of our work is 
working on the beaches of both Gateway National Recreation Area, as well as on the eastern end of the peninsula with New York City Parks Department. So for us, we're able to connect with thousands of beachgoers and residents alike about what do these signs mean? Why are these temporary closures here? Why are we like, why are we forced to kind of go around this one closure area? And most of the time, it's a really productive and open conversation. There's outliers, you know, our volunteers go through extensive training. We do a conflict de-escalation training. We are, as you said, allies, but also ambassadors. And so we have to be positive and upbeat. We could yeah. be very much the first person to ever talk to them about a bird, the first person to ever talk to them for sure about a piping plover. So if we start screaming and yelling about their off-leash dog, we've missed the mark. We've completely missed the opportunity to build a relationship. I assume that a lot of the people who are volunteering with you, and this is really tough work and takes a lot of devotion, but I assume a lot of them are not vegan, don't have a big picture about farmed animals. Am I right? Because that's something that you try to negotiate at all, or do you ignore it? And not to ask 12 questions at once, but is there a way in which an endangered species can be a gateway issue for people to see a bigger picture about animals? Do you see that happening? I think so. I think because for us, if you look at piping plovers, you'll be hard pressed to find a more vulnerable and a more fragile species in New York City. And the baby piping plover, which is precocial and must go down to the water's edge and feed itself from a few hours after birth. We have this pair of young chicks. They're about 10 days now, which is good because you have to get them to 25 to 35 days to be able to fly or fledge. And that's the assessment, right? Like you want to get those fledglings up, which is surviving chicks. But these two little renegades, they have this whole closure beach that we have set up temporarily with our friends at National Park Service. And they kept leaving the closure, like running all over the beach, running up to people, running on people's beach towels. There's no better ambassador for the piping clover than the piping clover, and then their chicks more so. And so for people to be able to see an endangered species up close and tend to see their family interaction, but also these young chicks, it was like watching these folks on the beach fall one by one into the grasp of the piping plover because they're like, holy crap, these are the most amazing, beautiful little birds. And wow, they're endangered. Wow. How many of them are left? I love non-native species. I love birds that are doing great with numbers. Like, I don't like people hating on gulls. I think gulls yeah. are amazing. And I love yeah. going to the beach and hearing laughing gulls. So I do think that having people look out for the most vulnerable species on the beach has extended to people caring more about other species like American oyster catchers and terns, which sometimes are hard to love because they will attack you. But I think that's one of their best attributes. Uh, but I think I would love a vegan world 1,000%. I think everyone in the organization knows that I'm vegan. When we do events and things, we have a vegan food. And there was like one thing where I had a vegetarian option. And our partner was like, I'm very surprised that you have a vegetarian option. He was almost disappointed. We are big believers of using local food vendors and restaurants. And so like our friends at Super Burrito and stuff, and they have an amazing vegan poblano burrito. And so we got like 150 of those for our training. So it's just like really amazing. So yeah. it's kind of a soft sell, but it's yeah, there. Yeah, it's a soft sell. 
I've certainly met quite a few vegans across the endangered species world. We are part of the Endangered Species Coalition, which is a wonderful Washington, D.C. political and advocacy organization of about 400 plus organizations working for individual, but then across multiple species and biodiversity. I think that the biodiversity crisis has not gotten its share of assessment and attention and urgency as our climate crisis has. And if there's something I've been consistently disappointed with is when climate activists don't make the connection to animal agriculture, but also widespread species loss. And it's not even that far of a connection. It's like if billions of birds are being, quote, euthanized or, quote, killed in these situations for avian influenza, and no one sees them, no one will meet them. If that can't motivate bird folks, one of the things that I was really on a tear about and we move on to other things, but I know some people are still working on it in New York, but you know, there's a hundred storefront slaughterhouses in New York City yeah. and yeah. they're horrific, but animals like escape there. And then all of a sudden it's on all the local news and everybody wants to see that little calf make it. Yeah. And everyone expects- it's, So people are so weird when it comes to how they think about animals. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. all know that, but you must right. see it even more so because you're working with people who care so deeply about these plovers that they are sacrificing their time and their energy. And I'm sure it's frustrating. There are other issues that must come up too, like with endangered species. Sometimes protecting an endangered species involves killing other wild species, even though obviously their main threat is undoubtedly coming from humans, you know, and development. We don't do anything about that. Instead, we worry about whether there's a fox or something like that. And I'm sure feral cats are a huge issue as well. How do you handle those situations? Yeah. So we're, we're not involved with any sort of lethal predator management, but there's definitely issues across the board. And if you look at the continuum of threats, you're absolutely right. Us humans are there at the extreme. And for us, it's about getting the vast majority of folks and it's the bell curve, right? We're trying to reach that massive center of people that are like, yeah, birds, whatever, you know, like, or just like, (laughs) yeah, piping clovers. or Yeah, we have those in Massachusetts, like whatever. And those people are like, cool, it's great. You're out here volunteering. Good for you. Go clovers. Like, we love those people, right? That is the vast majority, 80, 90% of people. Then there's like the people like me who are completely like on board and just want to start organizations and do stuff for this bird because it's so important, right? Because we can. And then there's the other side, which is an extreme outlier as well. They're profiting in like conspiracy theories. They're repeating lies. They're put here by the government. They're bringing in other social issues to say, oh, the reason why we care about piping plover is because we don't care about this. And it's like this zero-sum game, right? If the piping plover gets a little bit of pie, then that's pie I don't get, right? And that's very New York. It's the, dare I say, very Rockaway, which is just like a distrust for the government, for yeah. each other. And just come out to the beach. Come meet me. I'm easy to find. Our volunteers are very easy to find. And just come look through our binoculars and look at this little bird that you've maybe villainized, right? But for me, I think so that's the human piece. But of course, there's definitely natural species like the peregrine falcon, which numbers aren't great in the state of New York either, but massive predator to wild birds, but specifically to piping plovers and other beach nesting birds. 
baby birds are pretty much everyone's lunch. And I think that's why broods of robins and other birds, there's so many chicks, right? Because so few will survive. But, but presumably, yeah. peregrine falcon, I mean... There may be things that you could do about it, but you're not going to go after no, peregrine falcons because no, they're no. endangered as well, no, or at least exactly. threatened. I'm not sure. Yeah. I guess my point would be you can kind of avoid those issues of dealing with the feral cats, so you don't have to you don't have to confront that conflict. You just defend the piping plovers and leave it up to other people to deal with uh, some of the predator issues, which which must really help because it would be hard if your organization had to also be out there killing animals, which, you know, protecting wildlife can can involve killing animals. I think, though, for me, I do believe that I don't want to wade into places of unproductive debate or screaming and yelling. But like for me, lethal predator management, especially of natural species, of even human commensal species like gulls and crows and raccoons, like there's ghost crabs on the beach, which is definitely linked to climate change because our winters are shorter and warmer and these terrestrial crabs are getting bigger. But some of these species like gulls and raccoons are coming because of the trash, right? So if we can correct that with trash. Right. And right. that is There are something, things you, you know, can do that yeah. don't involve killing but everybody. Then, right. But then, you know, lastly, feral cats, it absolutely is a conflict between the bird world and people who advocate for TNR. And I have a lot of friends that are doing amazing work for community cats and feral yeah, cats. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you cannot have outdoor cats of any type in an area where there are beach nesting endangered birds. I mean, these birds cannot fly. So cats cannot be near these beaches. And unfortunately, they are. And so that is going to be a conflict going forward. And it's a conflict already now. But I dare I say, can we sit down and talk about this? Like, can we figure this out together? Unfortunately, it's been a lot of animosity and name calling on each yeah. side. But like cats in breeding areas of endangered species are an invasive species. They don't, they shouldn't be there. But why are they there? Because of us humans, right? And I think that also, I think many people who are representing the cats, not everybody, but are sympathetic to this issue, but just yes. point out that it's not yeah. like they're not eradicable they, because yeah. people keep abandoning cats. Yeah. Yeah. So TNR is not just a method of supporting cats. Yeah. It's yeah. the only way to control them. And at least if they're fed, they're less likely to predate, though not I'm not underestimating. It's a it's just an ongoing issue that is yeah. a nightmare for very for many. But I don't think everybody on the cat side, so to speak, are unsympathetic to this issue. They just are pointing yeah. out we don't know like yeah. your solutions don't actually work of yeah, killing the cats because no. people have been killing cats for eons and there are just more and more and more cats. There's been some things like and Jones Beach. I know that they had feral cats near piping plovers, and I believe that they've pretty much solved that problem, or definitely it's gotten a little better. And so for me, I think it's about more conversation, and I and it's as much the cat world as it is, is the bird world. And people that I know in bird conservation and wildlife conservation have almost like a different point of view and we're more open to discussing yeah. this issue yeah. it's the birders yeah can you talk a little bit about the difference between birders and and people who care about birds because birders have always struck me as very weird 
<laughs> in some ways, no offense to, to people out there who are who consider themselves birders, but I just mean the the people who are just the collecting. Yeah, it's anyone who kind of thinks that solving a problem, like the way to solve a problem, is to jump on Twitter and to like rail against. Like, I was a volunteer, and our rabbits have all come from um, New York City animal care centers, and there's a lot of folks out there who very anti-ACC because they have had to euthanize animals for space. And it's not great. And I don't like that. But there's a lot of animals. And I mean, look at ACC. Look at how many animals are like, they have so many dogs right now that they're all in cages in the hallways. I have very little time or patience for people. And I'm probably going to get some haters on the on, on Twitter now for saying this, but I have very little patience for the sort of keyboard bandits that are just attacking or throwing stones at people that are really trying to do good. And yeah, if you think that they should do better, absolutely. Join the fight, roll up your sleeves and do something. But like lobbing attacks on Twitter, usually it's Twitter, but it just doesn't solve anything. It really doesn't. So I guess like for birds, like birders and conservationists, a lot of birders care deeply. I know that. But then there, there's quite a few people too that their motivation is just to look at these species, right? And they have a list or they're tracking their birds with an app or they're really motivated to see rare birds. Like I've had multiple birders in New York City say to me like, oh, well, what's out here today? They'll come out with all the gear and they're like, it's almost like when I say piping plovers are here and they're rarer than any bird that you think you're going to find. And they're like, oh, I've seen piping plovers. And yeah, it's like, yeah. what That's are you very talking about? Yeah. yeah, it's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's like on your list that you've already checked off or something. But like when I started this, I thought like we'd have all these birders like getting involved with our cause, like tweeting our stuff or sharing our stuff on Insta and all of this stuff. But like I can count on one hand of all of our volunteers, the people that came into this as like hardcore birders. Mm. So That's like unfortunate. My, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. But my challenge to the birding community is it's not enough just to look at these birds. We have to do something about their survival. Three billion birds have been lost since 1970. That's a conservative number. Every single shorebird is in decline. Every single species. So it is not enough to go out. I have had birders that are texting us photos of dogs off leash. I've had birders calling us about things even worse. And I'm like, you were there. You were there. Like, why didn't you say something? Like, and so that's the thing that really burns me up is that like, Listen, my dad was a birder. I don't call myself a birder, and that's just the thing. Yeah, and I want to yeah. make clear, I'm not saying yeah. that be just because you're a birder doesn't mean you care about birds. No. There just seem to be a certain, no. unfortunately, Absolutely from what you're saying, not. a fairly large number of birders who don't seem to care about birds other than as a checkoff. 80% of our volunteers have never picked up binoculars. They are from all walks of life, all races, all ages, all ethnicities, multiple countries of origin. We have a Swiss volunteer. We haven't had a Swiss volunteer. We have so many people from across the globe, New Yorkers, all of them, right? They're coming together. They might be just arriving or they've been here their whole lives, like a seasoned rockaway local who's out on her bike every single morning. And she, her name is Yolanda and she's amazing. We have the best, most kick-ass volunteers. And they show up in their fanny packs and we give out stickers and we give out temporary tattoos and we give out postcards and 
magnets and all of these different things. We have these t-shirts that really distinguish us as volunteers. We don't sell them. Everybody wants to buy them, but they're only for our volunteers. They're like baby blue. We're almost like the UN peacekeepers, like in that color vein. But I love a lot of birders. There's some great folks out there and they do care deeply, right? But like a lot of people, at least in the birding world in New York City, they don't really care about piping plovers or other birds. And that's fine. But I think that we have to stop just assuming that somebody who's looking at, it's like the people who go on safaris, are they actually exactly. going to be a part of like- Very good, very good analogy, yeah. yeah. And that's what it is, essentially. It's like urban it's just safari a, collect- a collector syndrome. Right. Yeah. And there are a couple of accounts out there on Twitter and stuff, like bird alerts and like locations of sensitive species like owls and other things. And we don't have a lot of rules for our volunteers, but one rule is never post nest locations, oh, yeah. chick locations, anything specific to the beach nesting birds of any type to Twitter or to other places, because there's folks out there who have posted locations of sensitive species. We haven't had this often too much, but we'll never post like where the chicks are because people come out with like yeah, their massive cameras. Of course, it's and New they York City. To... Yeah. You're going to get a lot of people no matter what the issue is yeah. or the topic. There's a lot of people. But, yeah. But the one thing I really love, I take so much pride in is that our volunteers are picking up binoculars for the first time and will go to be looking at birds and watching them and witnessing them and going to other places. And I think that that's absolutely amazing. And so one thing we want to do more of in the future, and one idea we have is to do a sister school program between primary schools in Far Rockaway and Arvern and Edgemere in in Queens and sister schools in Andros, Bahamas, one of the places where our birds nest. Yeah, and that's so, really cool. Yeah, and I want so, people to understand, our listeners are from all over, probably not that many of them are from New York City or its environs. And even people from New York City are not that familiar with the Rockaways. It no. is a crazy situation. How invisible in so many ways the beaches of New York City are, even though they're surrounded by millions of people. But the communities you're talking about, what I wanted to point out, they are not prosperous communities. These are communities that experience a lot of poverty, or at least some of them. The Rockaways vary. Yeah. I love that you're doing that work, and I'm looking forward to hearing more of that project. It sounds amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. I mean, the Rockaways is such a mix and beautiful mosaic of people from all across the political spectrum. And what's exciting for me is that you can't just size someone up based on maybe a shirt they're wearing or a hat they're wearing or like what they look like, sound like their age or their background or whatever. Like, the support for piping plovers and for specifically for the work we're doing in the Rockways. Like we've done something like 10,000 hours of volunteer work so far. And yeah, there's a few people who are like, oh, these are outsiders coming from Brooklyn and into our community. I'm like, <laughs> cleaning your beach. Like we're actually cleaning your Coming beach. all the way like, from Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> so it's actually a positive thing. But like most people have been like, oh my goodness, look at all these people, right? And we have people taking two subways and a bus, a ferry and a bus and a bike, three buses, right? People driving, people taking their bike all the way from Brooklyn or taking their bike from across the peninsula. So it's pretty amazing and humbling to witness the commitment we have. We have people out every single day right well, now. In it July. sounds amazing. And I'm sure that a lot of people 
listening who are in and around New York City will be interested in finding out more and volunteering. But since most of our listeners are not from New York City, or many of them are not from the U.S., I just really want to put in a plug for the story you've told here. Everybody's looking for that volunteer opportunity. And so many of us are thinking it's in veganism or farm animal work. And as you say, sometimes that is just too big and too overwhelming. And I love this Think globally, act locally when it comes to animals. Think globally about all of the animals. But everyone has a species somewhere near their home that's in trouble and probably some people working for them. So I think it's a great way to get active. And it's also a great way to be able to spread this message of a global view of animals to people who care about animals but are not seeing the big picture. So I love the work that you're doing, Chris. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. And people can find you all over the internet, right? Uh, and in yeah. all of the usual places. And yeah, you get loads it. and loads of press. Very important <laughs> very, and very impressive that you managed to get so much press for this project. I think any animal cause is overwhelming. They're all overwhelming in different ways, but just don't look far because there's a conservation organization, animal organization, an animal shelter, a rescue for a certain species everywhere. Or there's and it an gets you out bird. of the house. Yeah, it gets it you does. to meeting good people it and does. also into beautiful places and it seeing really beautiful does. animals. So Absolutely. yeah, it's a great way to become active. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you. I feel like I've been in the Rockaways. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, my honor. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Our first story shows my devotion to my listeners because for you, I am actually reading an article in the New York Post, which is something I really try never to do because it is a rag. Nutritionist slams new lab-grown meat, quote, I'd rather eat my shoe. Well, your shoe is actually made out of the same stuff, probably, that your meat is made out of. So that, that actually makes sense. All right, this article starts off, controversial new lab-grown meat has been slammed by nutritionists and farmers skeptical of its nutritional value and whether it should even be labeled beef or chicken. All right, they're talking about, of course, about the fact that the green light was given to Upside Foods and Good Meat to sell their, it's not being called lab-grown meat, it's being called cellular meat, which is cultivated in a lab rather than coming from slaughtered animals. Doesn't that actually, wouldn't you rather have something? Well, obviously you would, but don't you think most people would rather have something cultivated in a lab than coming from a slaughtered animal? But, you know, no, people think that, think that that's a good thing. The process leaves a bad taste in many professionals' mouths, and then they proceed to quote one professional, which is this, this babe, Diana Rogers, and she uh, is a nutritionist and food author. I'd rather eat my shoe as I said before, than lab-grown meat, she says. Uh, She argues that the best type of meat comes from farms where animals are allowed to graze and raised outside of the industrial food system, where animals are brought up in over-cramped conditions and pumped full of hormones. So she sounds kind of anti-factory farming. 
She is a critic of alternative meat sources, such as plant-based meat. So she doesn't like any of it. Now, we should only be killing animals. But, you know, really, really well-raised animals, in her opinion, that are, are free-range and allowed to graze. And she points out that cell-cultivated meat is expensive. Oh, that's what we're calling it. We're calling it cultivated meat. I keep getting it wrong. I said before we we're calling it cellular meat. We're calling it cell-cultivated meat, but most of us are calling it cultivated meat and leaving off that cell. But the official name, I think, now is cell-cultivated meat. All right, sorry, I digress. Uh, she points out that it's expensive, in which case one would wonder why they're so worried about it. Like, what's the difference? Obviously, nobody's going to buy it. The point is that the price is going to come down. A pound of cell-cultured meat would cost about $17 to make, compared to $2 for regular meat, according to Bon Appetit. Yeah, can we go back a step for the for the good way to raise animals and that they should be allowed to graze and and not in the industrial food system and not cramped conditions. That ain't gonna cost no two dollars a pound. I'm sorry. <laughs> like like let's 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 compare uh the actual things that are being compared here when we're talking about price. But we never do, do we? By the time lab grown beef gets onto a plate at a restaurant, that could turn into a one hundred dollar burger. Well, you know, as I said, then maybe you should be so worried about it. <laughs> Rogers points out that she has yet to see a life cycle assessment, so she doesn't know how healthy it is. Uh, we don't have any public data. I have, you know, I'm sorry, but I have no idea like exactly what data is available. And then she adds McDonald's is still better because the meat is a better option for vitamins. What? <laughs> I mean, meat doesn't have vitamins. Well, you know, maybe has a few. And McDonald's, again, I thought she was in favor of like these meat from animals who were allowed to graze, etc. McDonald's? All right, then it points out that the National Cattlemen's Beef Association is trying to get the FDA to not use beef and uh, other other terms that they think should be reserved for meat that comes from dead animals. Well, they don't say dead, they just say animals. Good Meat shared a, a memo from the FDA that says that it's cell meat, which comes, they, they, they call it all 12 different things too, so I feel better that I can never seem to remember the name that we're using now, um, which comes from adult chickens or fertilized eggs is as safe as regular chicken. So it's, you know, there is a science. It says that the documents don't include nutritional information, but but I hope that they do get that nutritional information out there. You know, maybe it is already out there. I don't know. Because it says that Upside shared a 140-page document and submitted to the FDA. I mean, there's got to be nutritional information somewhere. Uh, and I'm sure it's a million times better than meat. They're taking, and this is my favorite, they're taking monocrop plant sources, taking them into a factory and using high-energy processes to convert them into meat, said Rogers. All right. They're... What they do when they raise uh, meat from animals, they take monocrop plant sources, take them into a factory, which is full of animals, and using and use high energy processes and and suffering animals to convert them into meat. It's like unbelievable. They of course cite that UC Davis study that's inauthentically talked about uh, the carbon footprint of of cell cultured meat could actually be worse than industrial meat production. And that study was was very bogus because apparently from what I read about it, which was on Twitter, I admit, <laughs> I didn't do an extensive research project here. You know, they took the absolute worst way of calculating what it possibly could require to to create this cell cultured meat and threw that number out there into the zeitgeist. And of course, that's the number that stuck. And then they talk about this uh, rancher, uh, which, you know, this nutritionist Rogers loves because food in its most natural state is the healthiest and most nutritious. 
pointing to regenerative farmer Thomas Locke. Uh, you know, can we go back to McDonald's? <laughs> like he, ain't, he ain't selling to McDonald's, I can assure you that. He practices what most people consider good old-fashioned farming, where the animals he raises graze in green pastures. Yeah, good old-fashioned. In the first place, it wasn't that good. Animals have always suffered. They might suffer more nowadays. I'm not denying that, but they've always suffered. And it's always been destructive. And they're coming up with a new way of doing it. Uh, so, you know, old-fashioned and good don't always mean the same thing. But, you know, and so I, the other point, which I know you know, I can't help but repeat myself, but I know you know it, that, that like, we couldn't, you can't create that much food. We have 9 billion people, folks, to get more efficient, even if we don't care about uh, animals. There's so much money to be made in fake meat, the Texas farmer said. My God, I hope he's right. I just hope he's right. Silicon Valley and venture capitalists have invested billions of dollars in this, and they're not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. I really hope he's right with that, too, because I don't care about the goodness of their hearts. I care about if they think they're going to make money, then it's all to the best. They're doing it because they're planning on making so much money off it. Yeah. Well, let's hope so. All right. This is a great article. I don't know whether it's rising. Well, I think it's related to rising anxieties, but I just thought you'd enjoy it. Man is sentenced in $9 million cow manure Ponzi scheme. This is from the New York Times. It is about this guy, Raymond Brewer. And apparently he pretended he was building machines that could convert cow manure into biogas. And of course, everybody out there was real is so eager to think that this is possible, to think that actually we can turn, particularly dairy. I mean, this was focusing on dairy and beef production. That would be harder because we're, we don't confine the animals as closely that we can turn them into an energy source as if these animals aren't, you know, producing enough by having their dead bodies eaten by us. We want them to light our, our lamps as well. A California man was sentenced on Monday to more than six years in prison. God, I wish it was more. For running, well, maybe I don't. For running an $8.75 million Ponzi scheme that hinged on a non-existent factory that was supposed to create green energy out of cow manure. And the reason maybe I'm not so mad at him is because it's so funny. <laughs> And, you know, the people he cheated, I don't have any sympathy for them. These are these investors. And apparently he, you know, he ran like this very detailed scam. He showed them the the dairies and, and, and explained in detail how it would generate millions of dollars in biogas. I just don't know of how much of this, the information that we've been getting. And the article doesn't go into, you know, whether how much of this has influenced the impression out there that this is a real industry and this is really going to make the the dairy uh, industry and, you know, other industries as well, but the dairy is the main one, uh, more viable because they're going to be energy producers. I, I wish there was more information on the influence of this, but I saw this guy told his investors he was building the plants and would generate millions of dollars by selling the biogas. And of course, they were incredibly eager to believe that. This is what people want to think. Of course, as I've pointed out before, and maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but it just seems to me that, yeah, it's better to burn the methane than to release it into the atmosphere. It's better for the climate to burn the methane than to release it into the atmosphere. That's true. But it's bad for it to be released into the atmosphere or be burned. It's better to not have it produced at all. There, It's still a fossil fuel type gas, even though it's not produced by fossils, it's produced by living animals. And and burning it is not innocent. It it's just better than just like letting it blow out your window. I mean, it's as if they think of of dairy production as inevitable. 
like this will just happen. So we might as well use the gas, but we shouldn't be doing the dairy at all. Well, as you know, he did not begin construction on a single digester. He simply took his investors' money and ran. Uh, and and he took people on tours of dairies. <laughs> I wonder if the dairies were in on the scam. I mean, you can't normally get a tour of a dairy where he said he was going to build digesters and now he's now he's going to prison for six years. And uh, probably a lot of people out there who heard about this are left with the impression that this is a viable business and never heard that it was nonsense. All right. Our, I just thought you'd enjoy hearing that one. Your summer mission, should you choose to accept it? This is from the Meat Business column on meetingplace.com by Gregory Bloom. And I just think this is an important thing for us to be aware. What he wants the people who read Meeting Place, other than me, he doesn't know I read it, to do is to go out there. And this summer, I'm asking you to go meet with your state and federal senators and representatives, if at all possible, Meet with your actual senators or representatives and not their staffers. I mean, I think all of us should just listen to this and take take this advice. Where to start? Call, schedule a meeting with your rep or find out where they're going to be this summer, you know, where they're making appearances or whatever. So you can meet with them at a regional event or offer to take them to lunch. They're still, especially if you're talking about your senator, like they're still not necessarily going to meet with you unless you're wealthy or something. But he, he points out you can always name drop to get an appointment. This worked for me recently. Hello, Senator. You don't know me, but I'm your constituent and you and I both know so-and-so. And I'd like to meet with you for 30 minutes. Can we grab lunch? And it worked. You do want to have some talking points, but, you know, he says it's really not they're important. You're start, there to start a relationship. This is what these people are doing, folks. This is what they're doing. And you don't, you don't even have to have an ask. Just explain your role in the meat ag industry or for you, not in the meat ag industry, <laughs> opposed to the meat ag industry. Be super positive. Find out what committees your rep serves on. Talk about why meat is, or in your case, is not part of a healthy diet. Why it's a terrible idea for schools to have meatless days or why whole milk should, whole milk, no less, should be kept in public schools. The, the fact that these people are even getting in the door is so infuriating. He says we are being outnumbered in attempts to have our voices heard. And I think that's just a scam he's trying to pull on his people because I bet that's not true. Even though our viewpoints are in the best interests of the health and well-being of society at large. Well, we could say that, couldn't we? Um, and, you know, he's saying that it's us, the, the animal advocates, and anti-ag people, which, of course, we're not anti-ag. We're anti-animal ag or anti-destructive ag. Most of them have never been to a farmer ranch, yet hold strong anti-ag positions. Like, do you have to have been to a farmer ranch to be against what they do? Like, wouldn't that be kind of weird? Like, they won't let us on, and we certainly aren't in that business. So how how the hell would we have been there? Do you have to be, be in the military in order to be against a war? I don't, like, it's ridiculous. I met a client, this is him speaking, I met a climate activist last week that was convinced that he made this, this is so obviously made up, that all animals are tortured on the way to the slaughter plant. Well, that's actually true. And that animals used for meat consumption are causing more global warming than all of transportation. You know, I think most anybody who is an activist understands that transportation is very, very big. So is meat. It's all a problem. They don't try to change the numbers because the numbers serve us to be accurate. This misinformed person had never been to a farm, but tries to meet with, like, what the hell? Had never been to a farm, 
It's just so annoying, especially from these business people probably never go to farms either. But who cares? Even if they haven't, you're allowed to have you've, you've gone to a grocery store. There's plenty of animals in a grocery store. They just happen to be all dead by then. But tries to meet with the same politicians I'm asking you to meet with this summer. You should easily be able to present a more well-informed picture of reality. Well, that is advice for us. We can definitely present a more well-informed picture of reality. In the coming years, he says, and you know, the fight is on, it's true. It's going to be extremely important for us to be involved in informing the lawmakers who make the decisions that shape our nation and states. Start your relationship building this summer. And I'm just saying, if they can do it, these guys and and women, I suppose, they're not, they're not all guys, but you know, these people and, you know, non-binary, whatever. <laughs> How did I get myself into that? These people are... Very, very eager to get their point of view across. We have to be the same. And they're not interesting. They're not smart. They're not articulate. If they can sit down and talk to their legislators, so can we. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine. And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 